Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on Asia, the Pacific, and the United States. I'm joined here by my co-host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution. Hi, Misha. How you doing? John, it is great to be back with you. We're welcoming you back to the Pacific Century after two uncharacteristic absences. We've been hiding out. I've been hiding out from Delta. No, actually. The (laughs) Witness Protection Program. Uh, We had had a couple of great episodes, but we're really glad. I'm really glad you're back because I think this episode was actually your idea. Yes. Uh, Wasn't it? Yes. You know, as an undergraduate, I took a class in Australian history from a visiting professor at the University of New South Wales. I've always wanted to have an episode just on Australia. I couldn't be more pleased that we were able to do this. Your wish is our joint command, John. (laughs) So we have a great guest today, uh, someone who not only can talk about Australia, uh, but can also talk about Australia in the world, which is which is really what we want to get at. We are very happy to welcome Alexander Downer to the Pacific Century. Alexander uh, was a leader of the Liberal Party. That's the Conservative Party, for those of you who don't know Australian politics. He was the longest serving Minister for Foreign Affairs in Australian history from 1996 until 2007. Uh, And he, after that, became the Australian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. Uh, He's also currently the director, the executive governor, I think it is, of the the School of International Government uh, at King's College London. Spends most of his time today in Old Blighty, where he's joining us from Manchester. So, Alexander Downer, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks very much. It's a great pleasure to be on. Well, we're we're thrilled to have you here because we've we uh, have spent a lot of time, Alexander, talking about China on this podcast. Of course, you and I were together on a uh, an Indo Pacific Commission for the Policy Exchange Think Tank uh, in London. Um, we we talk a lot about the U.S. We talk a lot about China. We've been able to talk about Japan and India, but we have not actually talked about uh, America's one of America's closest allies, perhaps in some ways our closest ally in the Indo Pacific, which which is Australia. So there's a ton, a ton of stuff to talk about. But uh, when we scheduled this with you, it was a, a few months ago, we just wanted to touch base on Australia. But since then, great things have been afoot. And we really would love someone to explain to us what is AUKUS, Australia, US, UK uh, agreement. Um, what, what is AUKUS? What does it mean? What does it mean for Australia? Who came up with it? And, and how is this going to change the Indo-Pacific? So AUKUS, um, um, Australia, UK, US, um, is really an agreement on um, technology sharing between those three countries. And it comes out of the Five Eyes arrangements, as they're sometimes called, where Australia, the US, the UK, as well as Canada and New Zealand have a very extensive intelligence sharing arrangement, um, which goes right back to the Second World War. So AUKUS takes this um, a substantial step further in terms of sharing technology, including, importantly, from Australia's point of view, the United States and the UK sharing nuclear propulsion technology for submarines with Australia, which hasn't been the case up until now. So Australia was in the very early stages of a contract with the the French to 
build a new generation of submarines in Australia, but based on a French design. And uh, they were to be conventional submarines. And an agreement was brokered um, going back to the, was it the G7 summit a few months ago in England um, between the Americans, the Australians and the British, um, in particular between President Biden and Prime Ministers Johnson and Morrison, um, to transfer this technology. So from Australia's point of view, it's a great opportunity to strengthen its original plan to build new submarines, but to have submarines which have a much longer range and more stealthy, more capable than would have otherwise been the case. And that contributes in turn to the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific region, which is what we want to achieve. So it's a good agreement. So there is AUKUS, which is brand new. And then, of course, there's the Quad, of which Australia is a core member, along with India, Japan uh, and the United States. Um, from from your perspective, and, and it's great because you're actually sitting in London primarily, though you're from Manchester today, but you're sitting in London. And so you're able to see this both from the Australian perspective as well as the, the British perspective. Um, why not do this with um, the Quad or, or more generally, how does AUKUS fit with the Quad? And, and why, for example, Japan, which has extraordinary submarine technology, though not nuclear, but extraordinary submarine technology, uh, wasn't brought into AUKUS and, and given that it has the largest submarine fleet in the Indo-Pacific next to next to China. Should should AUKUS get larger? Should the Quad get larger? How do they work together? Okay, so let's uh, separate the two, um, uh, AUKUS and the Quad. The Quad um, grew out of the trilateral strategic dialogue, which um, when I was the foreign minister, I came up with, with Rich Armitage, who was then the US Deputy Secretary of State and with the then Japanese Foreign Minister. And um, we we decided that we'd have an annual meeting of the foreign ministers of those three countries. Um, and the Japanese, as time went on, pushed to expand it to include India. Um, so those three countries were, well, the United States, um, Japan, and Australia were both allies and have, as in a treaty, alliance with the United States. So it made sense for there to be some trilateral dialogue and collaboration. Um, and then to add in India is to add in quite a lot of weight to that. Um, and this, again, is another vehicle, not that the members of the Quad would ever say so, but a vehicle for balancing Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific region and making sure that those four countries collaborate um, on strategic uh, regional issues. You know, they talk about climate change and um, assistance and in, 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 in natural disaster assistance and so on. But at its heart, it is all about basically balancing power, keeping US engaged in the region, um, keeping uh, its allies up to speed, getting India more engaged is about um, particularly its focus is on technology and technology transfer, so it's a different thing. Um, whether the UK would ever become a member of the Quad, I don't know uh, whether they would want to and whether it would make sense. They're not an Indo-Pacific country as such, although they have a lot of Indo-Pacific 
interests and they're investing a lot more time, money and energy in the in their Indo-Pacific diplomacy nowadays uh, post-Brexit. But, um, you know, they, 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 I wouldn't confuse the two organisations, um, which I've described separately, um, and the Quad, which, you know, with India in the Quad too, you have to move cautiously. It's important to keep India in it. Um, India is keen to remain in it. But um, you don't want to have arrangements which would frighten the Indians. And finally, on the issue of the submarines, well, actually, India does have nuclear-powered submarines, um, uh, but um, Japan does not have nuclear-powered submarines. And when Australia was considering back in 2016 what new submarines to get, um, there was a competition between the Japanese, the Germans and the French and the Australian officials chose the French. I mean, I'm not sure why they didn't choose the Japanese. I think one of the issues was that Japanese submarines don't have very long range, and for Australia, range is very important, of course, given yeah. geographic isolation. Alexander, let me ask you a question about uh, following up on something you just mentioned, um, which was uh, the purpose of the Quad. Um, is there... Uh, real fear or worry that the United States might pull back from the Indo-Pacific region? And has that worry exacerbated in the wake of Afghanistan and our disastrous pullout? That's a good question. I think there's always a view in Japan and Australia that we need to keep the United States engaged in the region. And there'll always be people in the United States who wonder why the United States is so heavily engaged so far from home. I mean, you know, there, um, there, there was a huge issue for the current president of the United States about getting two and a half, three thousand troops out of Afghanistan, but the United States would have something like 30,000 troops in Korea um, and would have more, I think, nearer 50,000 in uh, Japan. Um, and they are absolutely essential to the stability of the region. If those troops withdrew, that would substantially destabilise East Asia. It would be a huge setback. So, um, I mean, I think people in Washington, obviously, by definition, understand that. Um, but you don't want a president who suddenly thinks, well, the only thing that matters is the domestic agenda. Um, and, um, you know, Afghanistan was a warning shot because I think um, America's allies have been cautious in how they've expressed this view, but the sudden, the decision suddenly to leave Afghanistan, just leave without negotiating um, a departure and leaving the Afghan political system with a power-sharing um, regime in place and, and providing some ongoing support for the Afghan security forces were just abandoning the place altogether. It's seen um, uh, by America's allies as a warning. You never know. I mean, the, you know, you might get a president who would do the same thing again in another part of the world. So we have to always invest in keeping the United States engaged. And I think, to be fair, Think about ordinary American taxpayers. And just my sister lives in uh, in Austin. Just think about her next door neighbours. You know they're paying taxes 
inter alia these taxes are supporting these kinds of operations. So it has to be explained to those people in a democracy the whole time why the, why the United States should remain heavily engaged in the Indo-Pacific region. But if it left, it would completely destabilize the region. Do you think, um, one more uh, question along these lines. So do you think that uh, the U.S.-Australian relationship and then this broader uh, quad, is it mostly just self-interest of the nations or is it that uh, Americans love Australia and Australians love them back? So the thing I really came away from my uh, class by this visiting Australian (laughs) professor was how much in common the the two countries have. They they have the common uh, British roots, but they also have this sort of love of the frontier and you know this sort of love of the rascal and the anti-establishment uh so he went through all these figures in australian history who are, could be called scoundrels perhaps that are widely loved in australia and, and we have them in america too um so i it just, but it's just a way that you know, we have a very a lot of common culture you know our uh actors writers politicians easily move between the two cultures um do you think it's deeper or different than just, um, you know, Kissinger-esque hard-nosed realism about having um, only allies but no friends in the world? The hard question to answer, I would say, having been the Australian foreign minister for many years and living in different parts of the world, that the United States is probably more popular in Australia than in almost any other country in the world outside of the United States. I'm not sure about Canada. Might be more popular in Australia than in the United States these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, it's... uh... I'll leave your politics <laughs> to you. We don't get a vote. <laughs> Although my sister, my sister Spoken does. Like a my sister gets diplomat. a vote. Um, <laughs> so um, we always talk about it before she votes, but she makes up her own mind. Um, yeah, I think, look, um, we obviously, importantly, have common values, and that means we look at problems in the world in very much the same way. So if some... So there's some problem. I'm just thinking back to the time when I was the foreign minister, everything from um, 9-11 in extremists to um, violence in East Timor and the collapse of the Cambodian peace agreement. Various things happened of one kind or another, the Asian economic crisis, um, the upheaval in Indonesia's political system. Australia and the United States will look upon those issues in very much the same way. It's because we have the same foundations of beliefs. Um, I mean, it's the fact that we speak the same language is, I mean, to be frank, is a huge advantage. And so culturally we can understand each other much more easily than if we um, spoke um, languages which were un- unknown to each other. So, um, Well, you know, Churchill said the British and the Americans were two people separated by a common language. He did. But, um, well, I live in Britain now. And um, in Britain, Britain, Britain is different from Australia. It's not culturally very different, but it's a little bit different. And um, certainly the British are more reserved about the United States. The United States is, is less popular in the UK than it is in Australia. Um, and that might reflect some sort of cultural differences. But yeah, I mean, I think um, Australians look upon the United States generally with great affection, although we've been a bit astonished by American politics over the last few years. And the 
And the divisions in the United States have become so stark, more stark than political divisions in our own country. So, uh, Alexander, it's, it's Misha again. Um, uh, you may be somewhat befuddled by American politics, but I'm assuming that America is still more popular than China is in Australia. Can you tell us a little bit? I'm not sure uh, how much folks are aware of what Australia has been suffering over the past year plus from Chinese uh, punitive and retaliatory trade tactics. What's been going on uh, and and what is Australia doing about it? Well, so first of all, Australia, um, uh, China is Australia's largest trading partner. Over 30% of Australia's trade is with China. So um, in that sense, Australia is vulnerable. And so the Chinese uh, political leadership thought it was. Um, so when Australia started criticising China for its activities in the South China Sea, its treatment of the Uyghur people, its um, abrogation of the joint declaration on Hong Kong, um, Australia, um, apparently to the huge irritation of Beijing, said there should be an independent investigation into the causes of the COVID outbreak from Wuhan. Um, and, you know, there are, there's a list of 14 things, but they're the main ones. But the Chinese also wait. But yeah. can I just mention one one really critical one was was I, I think correct me if I'm wrong. Please was Australian attempts to ban Chinese dark money in your elections, which had been uh, which had been flowing in and uh, actually led to the resignation of a, of well, a senator. So um, more broadly, because this is a big issue, um, but a long and complicated issue. Um, and it can be summarised with the expression Chinese interference in Australia's political system. Um, so there were different ways that they were doing it, and it was mainly through through funding, actually, funding election campaigns, uh, funding candidates of one kind or another through all sorts of surreptitious methods. So the Australian government changed the law to make that impossible, at least legally impossible, um, so that, that um, I mean, yes, they objected to that. Um, uh, Australia banned Huawei from its broadband network um, and decided not to allow Huawei to build the 5G system, even though Huawei had the technological lead in terms of 5G technology, a long list of things. So the Chinese decided that they would impose, in effect, impose sanctions on Australia so they banned imports of Australian barley, um, probably good for barley growers in the United States. Um, they uh, banned imports of Australian wine, and it was a huge market for Australian wine, China, and a very rapidly growing one. Um, interestingly enough, they wound back, I don't think they completely banned, but they substantially wound back imports of Australian coal. Um, and, you know, so Australia has had to find other markets for these things, which in the main it's done, although with wine that's proved to be much more difficult. But in the, with the other commodities, found other markets, but not necessarily at such good prices. So there's been some skin taken off the Australian economy by all of this. However, I just want to make this point. Um, I think that, you know, my basic view of the Chinese government is that it's pretty incompetent. So in that sense, I differ from others because the, temp the geopolitical analysts often assume that the Chinese government, these, these mandarins in, in Beijing, are somehow sort of strategic and economic geniuses at work. I think they're not. 
Um, so the consequence of, of um, banning or effectively banning Australian coal imports is that the price of coal for China has rocketed from something like $86 a tonne to $180 a tonne. Um, Chinese steel mills who import coal, obviously for making steel, um, metallurgical coal, who imported that metallurgical coal from Australia don't anymore, they're paying something like $2 billion a week extra for metallurgical coal as a result of the Chinese government banning imports of Australian metallurgical coal. So I might just make the point, sure, we've had to find other markets, but talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. What a really, what a really foolish policy. And now, of course, we hear that China is suffering from energy shortages. The Tesla factory and Apple factories there have had to temporarily close. The um, cities are without power for several hours a day. Yes. Um, well, you know, brilliant, brilliant. That's what happens if you don't uh, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because you don't trade with point. Australia. No, well, I'm making the point that, you know, this is a, a completely incompetent thing for the Chinese government to have done. And out of, you know, right. it's like they lost their temper, decided that they would teach Australia a lesson. Australia is a smaller and a weaker country than China, and it will kowtow and it will, it will obey and not behave in such a recalcitrant way. Well, I'll tell you what the consequences of that have been, all that I described economically. So that China's leaders have done their own country a huge economic disservice by behaving like that. But over and above that, um, China has, uh, has inspired other countries to rally to the support of Australia. So you've got, uh, we've talked already about AUKUS and the, and the Quad, um, the um, speeches that were made only yesterday here in the UK in Manchester, where I am, by Liz Truss, the new Foreign Secretary, um, in support of countries which are liberal democracies, importantly, including Australia. So, you know, I, I have to say um, all China has succeeded in doing is um, doing itself economic harm and isolating itself diplomatically. It's a, it's a completely foolish blunder. And the thing they've learned about Australia is that Australia is not the United States or, for that matter, even the UK. It's not that powerful. But Australia is powerful and has a lot of powerful friends and is a popular country. And to treat Australia badly in that kind of immature way has cost China. And, um, you know, one day, one day they'll think about that. Um, can I make one other point about it? Um, and that is, in our countries, there is always debate about these things. So, you know, when President Biden suddenly to pull out of Afghanistan, you've got all sorts of people out there saying terrible policy, big mistake, don't like it, or great, or think he's done the right thing. But there's debate about it, and same in Australia. But in China, there's no debate. Xi Jinping decides, everyone follows. This is where countries ultimately go terribly wrong, where policy is not properly debated. There's no public, there's no transparency about policy making. Um, if you know you have one man making policies like that, you're going to end up in trouble sooner or later. And this attack on Australia 
has done China a huge amount of damage. John, we have to John, we have to get this translated <laughs> into Mandarin and beam this episode into China. No, I, I, that's, I, that's, I we have to do I mean, that. It's, um, it's this the fundamental flaw with uh, socialist or authoritarian governments is. You know, as Hayek said, you know, the human brain doesn't have enough processing power yeah. to run everything in the country. And that's why, we, you know, the, you know, the Anglo-American world has relied on decentralized institutions like free markets to our great long-term success. And uh, China, you know, I agree with you. I think China is falling into that trap where they have become so hubristic. They think that they are on top of the world and they can manage everything from, you know, the price of semiconductors to uh, bullying China around uh, Australia around the world. But let me, let me ask you one question about this is Alex, you, you're from Australia. You have relatives in America. You're in the UK now. Uh, uh, just a different domestic question about Australia. Maybe to wrap it up is who do you think has done better responding to COVID? And, uh, you know, we've really, well, we've seen all these stories about Australia and COVID. Australia, <laughs> did, did Australia do a good job? Uh, are they continuing to, uh, do a good job or things um, not turning out as well, uh, you know, which, well, you're in the UK right now. So maybe you voted with your feet as to which country is, <laughs> has the best policies, but who do you think is uh, making it through this uh, COVID and now the Delta uh, surge uh, the best of the three countries? So, the, you know, the old saying of, of the um, German philosophy, the philosopher Hegel, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only at the setting of the sun. <laughs> um, so we will know. Good. We will know eventually, but we don't know now. You get a first. Um, I, I think, think the grade the problem, we give out in Australia is a first <laughs> rather than an A. A first, yes. <laughs> That's right. Um, the, the point I'd make is this. Um, Australia did get off to a good start, but Australia has said, um, uh, become obsessed with lockdowns. And my guess is lockdowns will only postpone the problem, not solve the problem. And there has to be some cost-benefit analysis done of the impact of lockdowns um, on various other aspects of society, including the health system. So I think Australia did well in the short term. But in the medium term, um, it's become quite problematic, the Australian approach. Um, the United States approach varies a bit from state to state, I guess, um, whereas the UK is a more of a unified approach. I think the thing about the Brits, whatever you think about them, whatever you don't like about them, remember this about the Brits. They're the toughest people you will ever find. Um, and their basic attitude is, well, there are risks involved here. People die, but people die anyway. 10,000 people die a week in the UK anyway. So, um, you know, we can't stop death. Um, we hope that we don't die with COVID or even from COVID, um, but we're not going to have our whole society closed down in order to avoid um, anybody dying. Because the Brits have come to a staggering conclusion. In the end, everybody dies. Everybody is going to die. I'm sure glad I don't it's live there right now, actually. <laughs> I, think we need, I think we need a more upbeat ending here. And a little worried. John comes back and suddenly it's doom, doom and mortality. I, I don't know. If, uh... so, so, I mean, I was, before, before we did this recording, I was uh, participating in a conference and there would have been, I, I mean, there would have been 100 people in this room, I suppose. 
Um, and I suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me, not one person in that room was wearing a mask. Mm. There were no COVID signs, nothing. People, people in the UK, um, you know, they take their chances. Damn, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> I don't know what's the best. I don't know. I don't know what's the what the best. I don't know what the best approach is. My sister lives in Texas, and she tells me about the Texas approach. It's a bit similar to the British approach, actually. Um, American football fans. I mean, American football, not soccer fans. Take take their chances. We got stadiums full of people without masks. And baseball. Yeah. It's just if you're yeah. if you're indoors, you're supposed to to be masked up as opposed to in this mass outside. Who knows? Well, I'll leave it to others. Well, look, it's better than what they're doing in China, which is pretending there is no COVID, you know, lying to the people, pretending there's no COVID, refusing to really investigate the origins. And that's, you know, I, I, I agree. There's a price of living in an open society, we hope, is a transparent government, and they have to make tough cost benefit trade-offs as, as you know you've been you were in government for many years and that's what government services is making yeah. tough choices for the people one thing you do you do learn about government is there is very seldom the perfect choice um so there's a downside to almost every choice you make um and there will be a focus on the downsides but in china yeah well welding people into apartment blocks um making sure that the cause of the COVID outbreak is covered up, documents being destroyed, um, WHO investigations being um, inhibited. I mean, honestly, I think they're just, uh, even on COVID, they've done themselves huge damage. And what can you believe? I mean, how many people have had COVID in China? No one would know. Their figures, their figures are not to be believed. Well, on, that's right. On who's had it and and who has, um, who how many have died? And there's there's actually been a lot of sort of Sami's dot style reporting. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll never know. Uh, but what we do know is a lot more about Australia. And for that, we thank Alexander Downer. I mean, this was actually really. Uh, I think it's you know, critical that we we talk more about allies and allies. No one, again, you know, the, the sort of COVID lockdowns aside, uh, you know, there's there's no one that's been more at the forefront and on the front lines of um, uh, of the struggle against what the vision that China would like to impose on the region than, than Australia, quite frankly. And so, Alexander, we really appreciate you talking to us from both the Australian and the British perspective. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more to talk about, and hopefully we'll be able to to welcome you back to the Pacific Century. I look forward to coming back sometime. Nice to talk to you. That'd be great. Let me try my Australian. Good day, mate. <laughs> Good day. <laughs> well, that, was, that was so much better. Now, 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 oh, see, now Alexander will never come back after John mangled that. Well, on behalf of my erstwhile crocodile Berkeley friend, John Yu, uh, this is Misha Oslin. You've been listening to Alexander Downer from Australia and England here on the Pacific Century. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.